0: At first, he wanted to die, so he risked his life regularly jumping from high structures. But then the danger proved exhilarating, so much so that life ironically took on meaning. He went from base station jumping to wingsuit flying, descending from the top of the Matterhorn. Who is he? The greatest human flyer in the world. Jeb Corliss for the entire hour. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America, Oh my life, panic in America, oh, 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 oh. trouble in America, oh, oh, oh,
1: oh. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Would you ask a bird, you know, when are you gonna stop doing that silly flying thing? It's like, never, no. Flying is awesome. I, I, I will do flying until I die. I wish that I could fly into the sky, so very high. I think base jumping is very high risk, like a and it kills people. <laughs> I was in South Africa. We were jumping off of Table Mountain, which is a jump that almost killed me 10 years ago. I went back to kind of, you know, conquer that demon that was so terrifying for me because I had a really bad experience. I'm flying and basically in order to do the flight that I was trying to do, I basically lean over and generate speed. I'm doing about 120 miles an hour. And I use that speed to then create lift as I plane out. So there were these boulders and I was flying between the boulders. My left foot clipped one of the boulders and there was basically a flat granite ledge and I impacted the ledge at the waist. And as I impacted the ledge, I just skipped off the rock and it was bad. Two broken ankles, a broken fibula, a torn ACL, and I opened up a massive gash in my shin that was so spread that they had to use skin grafts in order to close it up.
0: It is my great honor and delight to welcome to Watching America, Jeb. Corliss. He is known as the human bird. Moreover, he's also, well, quite frankly, known by most people as simply a daredevil. But he is a daredevil with considerable intellect and thought and, well, an amazing sense of balance. I don't mean that just as a pun, but literally uh, in terms of the risks that he takes. And so to many, he is also simply an enigmatic character. I have, re- I have respect and regard for what you do, but I also have um, anxiety, anxiety, uh, even talking to you now, I noticed that when you were on Conan O'Brien, he said something that I was thinking. You're a very likable person, and I've seen uh, replete interviews with you, and 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 I've seen you speak at length. And Conan O'Brien said, "I like you," and he went on to say that he had tremendous worry about something, well, going awry, and 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 not only injuring you, and you've certainly experienced that already, and we'll talk about that. But taking you out of this world—is um, that a common thing that people have when, when getting to know you? This, this, if you will, expansive anxiety about, well, investing, friendship, well, association.
2: He, he, absolutely. I mean, what I do is incredibly dangerous, and you know, it's, it's. I'm aware of the risks and dangers involved in what I do, and so are other people. I mean, it doesn't. When you see someone jump off of a thousand foot building with a parachute, you can see the inherent dangers involved in what it is. And, you know, when you start really researching the sport and you start seeing, you know, the actual fatality rates involved in what we do, I can totally understand why people are terrified, you know, and scared. I mean, it makes sense. And and at the end of the day, that's kind of what the sport is. The sport is about fear and it's about trying to, to overcome fear and learning how to deal with fear. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm scared doing it. Um, I know what it is, and I'm very well aware that the people around me are terrified of it as well. That's kind of part of the point, you know, the point of the, of the actual sport itself is fear.
0: Well, let's get to how you got to this point and many points in between by going right back to the beginning. We're going to rewind to your early life, which was in New Mexico. Um, your parents, yeah. as I understand, were art dealers. Tell us uh, a little bit about them.
2: Yeah, my, my when I was young, my, my parents were art dealers, and they would travel the world buying artifacts um, in countries like Pakistan, India, Nepal, Afghanistan. So a big part of my childhood was spent traveling around the world with them as they bought art to bring back to the United States to sell. So by the time I was seven years old, I'd actually been around the world already three times, um, and I'd spent over a year of my life living in places like India and Nepal. So... Yeah, my childhood was a little bit different than most. And I think it probably had a very strong impact on, um, I don't know if I'd say making me an adventurous person, but it definitely turned me into a traveler. And it made me a, a person who wanted to question and learn and see, you know, the world in different cultures. And I think that's kind of where this all began.
0: Let me ask you a particular question related to your extensive travel as a child. You had uh, a particular standout experience. In New Delhi watching a snake charmer with a king yep. cobra and yep. you are a very self-aware person and at, even at that age you were very cognizant of the fact that you were f- intimidated feeling genuine fear. Oh, yeah. Most people would leave well, it at that but you became analytical.
2: It, it was interesting to me because at that point I mean I was only five years old and I didn't know anything about snakes. Like my first experience with snakes was that moment. And it was a very powerful experience seeing a giant King Cobra come out of a basket. And the the physical feeling I got from seeing it was very powerful and, and overwhelming. And I didn't really understand why this creature was making me feel the way it was making me feel. But beyond that, I also got something called the Delhi Belly. And I had my first near death experience in, De- in New Delhi at five years old as well. The Delhi Belly is a very extreme version of um, amoebic dysentery. And my parents took me to a doctor who informed them that I was going to die, that they couldn't do anything for me. Um, and my parents obviously didn't like that answer. So they started taking me to multiple doctors until I finally found one who said, yeah, it's bad. This is really bad, but we'll, we'll do what we can do. You know, and I went through a month of fighting for my life and I remember, and I, you know, I lost like a third of my body weight. I, I went through serious hallucinations, but what was really remarkable about the experience is I found out early that I was going to die, you know, and it's a really interesting thing to, at a very young age, get a it was very real understanding of mortality and seeing that, you know, we're only here for a short period of time, you know, no matter what you do. You, you, a lot of people are like, well, you know, I can live to be 80 years. And you're like, well, maybe you might be able to, you know, it, under perfect circumstances, you'll get to 80. But, you know, by the time I was 10 years old, I'd already had three near death experiences, you know, so uh, I've had so many near death experiences now that I couldn't even come close to counting them. And I've had actually two death experiences where my heart has stopped, I've flatlined and I haven't I've stopped breathing. Um so I've gotten to experience what death is on on very profound levels and it started when I was very very young. And I think that you know a lot of people when they have a near death experience, you know, they get some kind of religious experience from it or see some kind of tunnel or see some kind of light or whatever, whatever, you hear all these incredible stories. That's not what I experienced. Um, When I died, my experience was blackness. Actually blackness isn't even the right word for it because that would imply there was something. Um, For me, there was nothing, nothing at all. You know, when I went down, when I came back, doesn't exist. So my whole kind of philosophy, which started very young, was, you know, I don't have very much time here. Um, So I'm going to try to make that little bit of time I have while I exist matter. I want to make those. I mean, life is just a bunch of experiences you have until you die. So for me, I wanted to try to make those experiences as spectacular and as amazing as I possibly could, and once I—it's weird because once you come to that that realization, it actually kind of frees you because you're no longer so concerned that oh yeah, well I'm gonna die. So you're like, yeah, I am gonna die. So now I have to live, you know. And and it's interesting because you know. That's where it started. But throughout my life, I've had more and more experiences that just kind of reinforced this lesson and reinforced this understanding. You know, I, I can go into that a little bit more, but. You know, I'll let
0: you ask more questions. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's quite all right. I mean, you, you, you anticipate a lot of my questions, but I'm going to ask you uh, something which is is a genuine question about questions. Are you afraid of any question that I could possibly ask you?
2: No, there. you can ask me anything. Um, if I okay. can't answer it for any reason, then I'll just say I can't answer it. So, yeah, feel free to ask me anything you want.
0: All right. There are people listening to us right now who might say, well, this is all well and good for Jeb Corliss. Uh, he mm-hmm. thinks life is essentially for experience. But evidently, on some level, some people could accuse you of simply living for yourself yeah. without regard for others. How do you respond that's- to that notion?
2: Um, I wouldn't be able to argue with it. I mean, that if that's their view, that's their view. And it's interesting because I was, asked a question similar to that a while ago. And and I'll actually phrase it the way they did, because it was interesting, because I'd never thought about it before. But someone asked me, you know, hey, Deb, you know, I get it. I get how this is important to you. I get how it helps you. I get how this is important to you and benefits you. But how does this benefit anybody else? How is this not just the most selfish thing a human being can do? And at first, I was like, wow, what a Douchey question. I mean, that's, like, that's just a, that's, i, I at first was like, "Wow, that's a dick question right there." But then I thought about it, and I'm like, "Wow, that's actually it's actually a good question." And and the only way I could answer the question was by saying, "Well, you know, I, I, I'll have to ask you a question. You know, what what does Michael Jordan do, or or Tiger Woods, or or any athlete other than you know play games and get paid a lot of money to have fun?" I mean, at the end, what do these people do? And really, um, I'm not saying that this is what I do because I would never put myself in those, those people's categories. But, you know, someone like Muhammad Ali um, inspires other human beings, you know? And what it comes down to is when somebody sees somebody earning a living, doing something that they genuinely love, it could have the impact of inspiring that person to maybe follow a similar path if, if you can inspire another human being to live their life in a slightly better way, um, well, then I feel like you have done something for others. You have done something for society. And I think that that's what most athletes and most, you know, actors and people who earn a living doing things that they enjoy. That's what they do. They inspire other people to maybe live their lives in a slightly better way or more true to themselves. And, you know, myself, you know, I, didn't I, I'm not going to pretend like I got into base jumping to inspire people because that was never my goal. When I was a teenager, I suffered from a mind-crushing depression. And I was incredibly suicidal. And by around 17, I was going to kill myself. Like, it was going to happen. I wasn't going to make it through my teen years. I'm not the only person to go through this. A lot of people, you know, especially adolescents who are going through puberty, have a tendency to you know, suffer from chemical imbalances or just something Mm -hmm. happens to them in their lives that makes them very unhappy and they don't feel like being here anymore. And I was one of those people and I needed to focus um, a lot of energy on myself to try to just survive. And base jumping happened to be an outlet that I was able to channel a lot of very negative and very dark energy into And and I feel very fortunate that I found something so big and so powerful that I was capable of just, you know, and and so all-encompassing that I could turn into a passion and and have something that becomes a purpose.
0: There are people listening who would also say, here is a man uh, in his early 40s with a, a Ample physique, great body, everything functioning except for injuries that have incurred as a result of your of your choices. Uh, yep. When there have been people like Steve Stephen Hawking's with a body crippled, cannot move. There are children mm-hmm. fighting leukemia at the age of four. Some people might say, from a theological perspective, is this man not flaunting God uh, and uh, and and insulting God by taking such risks? There are people who would listen and are listening who invariably yeah. are thinking he's wasting such a gorgeous gift and being reckless with it. How do you respond mm-hmm. to that?
2: Well, first I would respond to, you know, this concept of, you know, God, I am agnostic, um, on a level that I with, would be considered an agnostic atheist. Therefore I, do, I don't believe in God. So that, that first concept is irrelevant to me. Um, okay. beyond that, um, anyone who thinks that they have some kind of control over when they're going to live and die are wrong. Um, People think, or people would like to believe that they're going to be the one person who lives forever. They're going to be the one person who figures out how to not die. Um, And I've got incredibly bad news for them. Um, They're going to, and they really don't have any control over it. To give you an idea of, of where, How I do what I do, I I guess this is a good way of describing how I'm capable of pushing through um, gut-wrenching horror that would make most people, you know, retract, stop, um, and not do the things that I do. Um, As I'm standing on the edge of a building, and I'm very well aware that in the next moment I could potentially die if I make a mistake, um, and the fear starts to overwhelm me. And every nerve ending in my body is saying the exact same thing it says to you, which is don't do this. Stop. This is dangerous. You know, please, please. You are in a battle. You're in a war with yourself in order to actually push yourself to do this kind of thing. Um, I remember two stories. One is my little sister. When she was 16, she had a friend who had gotten her driver's license. She only had her license for about a week. Um, and she was driving herself to school. You know, this is a 16-year-old girl never done anything dangerous in her life, doing something that every one of us do every single day without thinking about. As she's driving to school, someone in the other lane who's coming towards her falls asleep behind the wheel, um, swerves into her lane, hits her head on, and kills her instantly. She didn't even see it coming. You know, that's a 16-year-old girl Never done anything dangerous in her life, not trying to do extreme sports, not trying to do anything, and is dead instantly without even noticing that it was coming her.
0: I'll acknowledge that these things happen. Randomism occurs in the universe and in our life experience without question.
2: And that's why I do what I do. Because of okay. that randomness. Because things happen at random, and you can die at any moment, at any time. And, and again... The car accident's one example. I want to give you a second example that's even more extreme. And anyone who's ever studied a brain aneurysm and how brain aneurysms work, I know three different people who've died from brain aneurysms. One with a twenty-three. I know one. Exactly, you know one. So yes. most people do. Brain aneurysms kill lots of people, and it's a switch that turns you off at any moment. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. And and because of that randomness. Because of something that, that can kill you instantly, even when you're not doing anything dangerous, just living your normal life, that means you, me personally, I can't talk for other people. I can only talk for myself. I am not going to allow the fear of something that is completely and absolutely inevitable, which is death, prevent me from living my dreams and doing the things that I love. And And the person who looks at what I do and says, oh, you're, you're, You know, there's these people who have cancer and these people who are starving to death and there's people who have whatever, you know, and you're just flaunting your gift. It's like, no, no, no. If you're not living your dream, if you're not doing what you love, if you're not expanding and growing and pushing to the very limit of what you're capable of doing, you're the one late wasting your life.
0: When you get in your car, Jeb, do you put on your seatbelt? Absolutely. Okay. Well, why? I mean, you can't control your life, Jeb. Anyone can hit you. you. You just cited an example of a 16-year-old girl getting sideswiped.
2: Why put on the belt? Okay. Well, it's the same reason why I put on a helmet when I base jump. The same reason well, why you, I wear body then, armor. Then, then you
0: are acknowledging by your actions.
2: It's about risk evaluation. You evaluate risk. You do what you need to do to be as safe as you possibly can in whatever endeavor you take on. Which getting in behind the wheel of a car is part of that endeavor. So you buy a safe car that has airbags, that has, you know, you do everything in your power to try to survive through whatever it is that you're doing. You know what? Here's a good example. Earlier you said that I was a, a daredevil. Which well, that's I don't, how people
0: describe you. Yeah,
2: It is how they describe me. And, it, and I get described as that a lot. I also get described as an adrenaline junkie. People use that word to describe me too, which I don't personally associate myself with either one. Um, I'm going to talk about astronauts. Okay, astronauts do something very different than me. I'm not trying to say what I do is as important as what they do is because it's not. But I'm going to talk about a mindset or a mentality. Okay, an astronaut, when they fly into space on a rocket that's you know basically firing jet fuel from the bottom of the line, blasting them off into space, they get adrenaline from that, right? It's a scary thing to do. When they went to the moon, it was terrifying. And no question, they got adrenaline. But you would never call them an adrenaline junkie. That's not why they're doing it. It has to do with motivation, right? So the Mm -hmm. reason that person is going to the moon is to push the boundaries of what human beings are capable of doing, taking the entire human race to another level, right? Um, Do they get adrenaline from it? Absolutely. Is that why they're doing it? Absolutely not.
0: I'm OK, but similar. I have to challenge you. I've got to challenge yes. you here, Jeb. Uh, I, I like you so much. I'm enjoying this. I hope you are. But I've got to challenge you. When the astronauts strapped themselves in and they went on the you know, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, Apollo 13 yeah. was the one that didn't make it. They also have uh, an end mission. It's to bring back rocks. It's to do experiments. It's to advance for humankind. In your exactly. case, you're not bringing back rocks. You po- you're possibly hitting rocks and have.
2: No, there no, a no, difference. no, no. right again, you're, again, you're, you you, their mission, in only a few of them went to the actual moon to bring back rocks. Most of them just went into space to go into space to prove it could be done. Again, it's to push the boundaries of what a person can do, right? Well, think about it like this. Human beings, since we've had the ability to reason and think and look up at the sky, we've seen birds flying. And since we've been capable of understanding that creatures can fly, we've dreamt of being able to do it ourselves. And now, after however many millions of years, here we are flying. And you need to think about what I think makes the human species so incredible is the fact that we are able to evolve, not just by morphing our bodies, but by creating technologies that allow us to do these things. So where it would take a flying squirrel, like imagine the first squirrel who started jumping from tree to tree, right? How many squirrels had to die to evolve the ability to fly? And how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years did it take for them to be able to start doing it for real? Well, as a human being, we're capable of creating technologies. We're able to use our minds to advance and evolve much more rapidly. And now a human being can fly like a flying squirrel, right? In just a few short decades. And what we're doing as, as wingsuit pilots, base jumpers is we're evolving and we're pushing the human species into new territories, new grounds, and experiencing things that people only dreamed of only a few short decades ago. So the, the, The concept of a human being and adventure and people pushing boundaries, there are always going to be people who don't understand what they're doing. The first people who got themselves into little wooden boats and tried to cross oceans, there were most people like, why would you want to do that? It's great here. Why would you want to go out into the ocean? What's the point? Or the people who climbed massive mountains to see what was on the other side. There are always going to be adventurous people who are always going to be pushing the boundaries of what human beings are capable of. And then there's always going to be large portions of people who see that as pointless because they, can't, they don't have the vision to see beyond their own little world, their own little space, their own little bubble in which they live. But the person, you know, the adventurous human being who goes out and pushes the boundaries both physically, mentally, emotionally, in every way, shape, and form, they're the ones who take the rest of the human species kicking and screaming into a new world. You know, me personally, I didn't get into this to inspire other people. I didn't get into this to push the boundaries. None of that was the reason why I got into it. It became the reason why I continued to do it. But in the beginning, I was just trying to survive. And, you know, I was dealing with with a mental disorder that was – putting me into a place where I wasn't going to make it out of my teens. Like I wasn't going to survive. I shouldn't be here.
0: Let me, let me, let me address that. L- let's get there. Yeah. Okay. So um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to watching America. And I am delighted. That's not an exaggeration to have Jeb <laughs> Paulus uh, join us today. He is known as the human bird. He's a base jumper has been for decades uh, and a flyer. He, he wears the equivalent of a squirrel suit. Um, You started out as a uh, a very introspective, uh, basically isolated child in some ways for all of the travel experiences. You've already said that you had three near-death experiences. You're driving with your auntie in the back of a car. You're looking Mm -hmm. out the window, not thinking anything in particular. And then you notice a bird descending rapidly, initially jumping off from a telegraph pole. And you Mm -hmm. see the bird suddenly take flight. And you say to yourself, I want to do that. You have a chorus of people for the next 10 years saying, oh, or six years at least, saying, no one can fly, that's ridiculous. Uh, Learn to pilot if you want to, but no one can fly, Uh, that's impossible. Until one day you're sitting on your couch, you see a documentary on base jumping, and suddenly you feel alive. That is the turning point for you. And you think people have lied to me, people have not told me the truth, and people have limited themselves. And that starts you on this trajectory Uh, where today you find yourself in a a very interesting position. You have said, I don't like optimists. I don't like pessimists. I like realists. So you are a a reality-based, not only jumping-based, but reality-based individual. When I look at what you do, I am awed. I'm awed by the beauty of it. It is incredibly beautiful. And then the next thought comes because I, I part of my background is in cinema and, and teaching film and what have you. Is I think to myself, mm-hmm. if it hasn't been already, I think I've seen twenty one James Bond films. But you should nice. be hired for the opening sequence of a James Bond scene. Has, has this been done already?
2: Um They've done some. They've done like skiing off of cliffs. They've done base yes. jumps off the Eiffel Tower. Um, I don't think yes, they've that done was any even that stuff die. yet. But yeah, but I but I okay. do believe well, that uh, we did. I just con- did one for 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 a Point Break, though. We did a massive through flying sequence for the last Point Break movie. Okay,
0: you've got to contact the Broccoli's. You know, the Broccoli family produces all these things. And I, I if I were you, I'd say uh, contact the Broccoli's because it's 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 a given <laughs> introduction. So it's thrilling, it's exciting, and it's beautiful. But at the same time. Um, people will argue, and I know you are counter-arguing quite effectively, incidentally, in some ways, um, that it is not just mere self-indulgence, uh, but it has purpose. But what is the end? Someone might say, "Is that okay?" So we all, we all, we all base jump. Is that where you're taking s- civilization or society? Or is there a bigger, narrative that I'm, no, not, no, seeing no, no. I'm this, not seeing, or others are not seeing?
2: This is a thing. Every single person in this world has to find purpose for themselves. A reason to wake up in the morning, to eat food, drink water, breathe oxygen. Um, we all have to find reasons for existing, you know? And my reason for existing is not the same as your reason for existing. Is not the same for anybody else's. And when I have people ask me, like, you know, what's the point? Like, what's the point of what you do? And I just look at them and I say, well, I'm going to tell you what. You need to ask yourself that exact same question. What's the point? Why are you here? Right? Go out in the world. Figure out why you're here, what your purpose is, what your point is. And when you can answer those questions for yourself, well, then you've just answered the question you asked me. That's the point. You know, you need to figure out your point. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people every single year all around the world who can't answer that question, and they end up ending their own lives. Suicide is a very real thing that's happening every single day everywhere in the world. From people who cannot find the point, right? So for me, you know, I don't really care what other people think about what I do. It's irrelevant. Other people's opinion, whether it's good or bad, doesn't matter, right? All that matters is that that I, it gives my life meaning, it gives me a reason to continue um, existing, you know? and I'm incredibly happy now. I've become a very happy person over the last 20 years of going through this process. I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned about, a lot about why I exist. I've learned a r- lot about the point of life in general.
0: I, I want to ask a question related to risking one's life. At the outset of this series, Watching America, one of our first programs, I interviewed a California highway patrolman who has talked down over 200 people from taking their lives uh, on the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, well, let me put it this way. It has addressed 200 people from taking their life on the Golden Gate Bridge. Some pers- actually went through with it, but the majority did not. Um, the people were desperate. They were over the edge, um, literally, and willing just to fall to those waters. I lived in San Francisco for 11 years. I watched the video of you um, base jumping from, it looked like both towers, alternately, uh, from the Golden Gate Bridge. And I looked on and I thought, this is an interesting man, because here is a man who at one time was so severely depressed, and and you actually uh, have reproduced that particular video on YouTube, where you spoke about, it's a special jump to you, because at that time it was a very, very dark period in your life, so dark you can't even express how dark it was. And that, in a sense, that jump from the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge was, if you will, uh, the, 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 the... Reassertion of the phoenix—it was a rising within you and purpose. And you spoke yeah. about it, and you said that in some instances, death is not an issue, nor is life. And because death is not an issue, you can afford to enjoy life even more so. So, in a sense, it's a win-win. And I immediately thought, obviously, of the fictionalized police officer Mel Gibson plays, where you know, this is—it doesn't make a difference if you die. Um, yeah, we weapon, yeah. But then you evolved from that. And I've just heard that in your voice that now life has purpose, life has meaning, and you don't want to throw it away. How did you arrive at that?
2: Um, You know, it's interesting because, you know, when we talk, um, we're talking over a lifespan, right? So when I was 16 years old, I was a different person than when I was 25 years old. I was a different person from when I was 35 years old, which I was a different person than I'm 44 years old now, right? So each of these different periods I grew and changed and became something different. And now as a 44 year old, who's been base jumping professionally for 21 years and has experienced some truly, I don't even know how to describe it. Remarkable things. I've seen things that you wouldn't believe. I I don't believe it. If I didn't see the If I didn't have video to prove it, I wouldn't believe that it actually happened. I'd believe I'd imagined it. You know, I've seen things so powerful and so horrific and so magnificent. I mean, in every way you can, everything that's heavy and extreme, I've been through and things I could never have imagined. And those experiences helped put my life, or not just mine, but just life in general into perspective. And I've, Hit waterfalls, breaking my back in three places. I've been eaten alive by animals for hours while waiting for rescues. I've spent six weeks lying in my back in hospital, staring at ceilings, unable to move. Um, I have watched friends die in ways that are so horrifying that uh, I don't even have words that can express the the sheer magnitude of the impact that it has on you as a human being. And these things have all kind of come together to change me and and turn me into something very different. And the person I am now is completely different than the person I was 20 years ago. I have evolved and grown into something new. And honestly, I could stop base jumping right now. I never have to do another jump again for the rest of my life. I, I've gotten what I've needed to out of it. Um, and at this point, I don't need to put my life in danger anymore at all. Why do you? I mean, I can, Why do you? Um, it's an interesting question because I ask myself that all the time. Pretty much every single time I do something that's scary and dangerous and, and potentially can end me, I asked myself that and every single time I have to find an answer. Um, And now it's harder and harder for me to find those answers, you know, because, you know, when I was younger, it was obvious why there was no other alternative. I needed it to survive. Like that. It was what was keeping me um, alive. And it was what was dragging me through my life and through time without it. I wouldn't have made it. It was something I needed in order to, continue existing. Um now I am happier just hanging out at my house with my little dog Ziggy and my fiance Allie and just you know I'm I I'm going to get married and I'm probably going to have kids now and as I do have children I'll probably start moving further and further away from this defying, totally unreasonable stuff, you know. And and that's the thing is like trying to justify wing-to-proximity flying is becoming more and more challenging for me because I need it less and less. Um,
0: But you also now, excuse me, you have more of an investment now in people beyond yourself. I mean, isn't that the correlation here?
2: I mean, Ali- Well, actually, honestly, to tell you you, the truth, man, now I'm way more interested in, in helping others and doing things with others and communicating and connecting and doing motivational speaking and, and doing things that actually do inspire other human beings than I do, and actually putting my life in danger. Um, but there's a weird um, paradox or a catch 22 or however you want to say it, where you spend your life becoming very good at something, right? It becomes you spend all of your time all of your energy, all of your power into training one very specific thing, right? And what I'm good at is I'm very good at risk evaluation, and I'm really good at facing gut-wrenching horror. I am capable of operating at a very high level under very terrifying um, circumstances. Um, That skill that I have developed over a lifetime, is something that doesn't really translate well into everyday normal life, right? So it's not like I can just all of a sudden work as a CEO in a company, you know, with the skill set that I've developed. Um, my skill set is unique.
0: Your skill set is, without question, you're a speaker. You're reflective. Um, I, I would imagine that you are very, very capable of writing well. You are a form of inspiration. You are a walking question mark. You, you pose questions for all of us to think about. You really do. But calculated risk, and you say that you, you know, you, you're comfortable with that, but I'm gonna say two words. Steve Irwin, he too yeah. was very comfortable with what he considered to be calculated risk, and he went a little bit too far out of his bounds yeah. and suffered the consequence. Yeah. Do you feel that you have to continue in this track to justify your existence? That without the the, the actions that are, are potentially perilous, that you you don't have weight or significance? Because I wonder that speaking to you, and and I want to say, and I'm, I'm just now I'm just I'm going off the tracks. Okay, forget the yep. radio program, forget everything, forget every listener. I don't care anymore. Right now I do, but I don't. But here's the yeah. thing: <laughs> I am concerned about you as a human being, and I'm I'm talking to a soul. I'm talking to a spirit. Whether you accept that or not, you're not. You, you, you're not. You don't have a body um, uh, alone. You have a spirit, in my estimation. You may say, "Well, this man's wacky." Okay, fine. But I'm speaking <laughs> to a human being, beloved by people all around you, including your fiance Ali. I'm speaking to you and saying you don't have to keep doing this anymore. What is there more to prove?
2: Yeah. You, you know. Could stop it, it's tonight. interesting. It's interesting because. Um, what you're saying is 100% true. Um, do I need it to justify myself and judge my existence? No, I do not. I haven't needed that for almost 15, 20 years. Um, the the concept, cause I, like I said, when I do something super dangerous, I ask myself these questions. And the answer I always come up with is this. I could stop base jumping right now. I could stop flying wingsuits. I could stop diving with sharks. I can stop riding motorcycles, big wave surfing, um, climbing, doing anything dangerous. I could stop all those things. Um, And I'm still going to die. That is something that I think a lot of people do not want to um, accept. And because they don't want to accept that reality, they live in a somewhat paralyzed state. Because they're so terrified of dying, they have a tendency. to not do the things that would truly bring their life happiness. Um, And I'm speaking not for everybody, because there's a lot of people who don't need that, right? There's a lot of people who are totally fine and totally calm with just having kids, white picket fence, insurance policy, a job that they wake up to to go and come home, and those people, more power to them. Um, I'm just not wired that way. I am someone, unfortunately or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, who needs to push himself. I need to experience fear. I need to be outside of a comfort zone. I'm in a constant state of needing to, I don't know if stimulation is the right word, but let's put it this way. If I stopped base jumping, well, I would just start shark diving more. And if I stopped shark diving, then I would just go start diving with hippos more. There will always be something where I'm going to need to push what I'm capable of. And it's just part of my nature. It's part of who I am. And it's how I am happy. I'm happy that way. I mean, I don't use drugs. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't drink caffeine. I don't take aspirin or Tylenol when I break bones, I don't use pain medication. I am a person who is about experiencing the moment and experiencing reality for what it actually is, as opposed to what I would like it to be. My entire existence is wrapped around this idea of, you know, feeling the world in which you live and experiencing the reality in which we exist. Um, And trying to have it as unfiltered as possible. You know, I want, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that have developed my senses at their optim- absolute most optimum level, you know, to show me the reality that exists outside of myself. Again, you know, what's a good, <laughs> I, had a, I had an interviewer ask me years ago, um, you know, when are you going to stop this silly flying thing? You know, and that's actually the exact word. And my response was, you know, would you ever ask a bird, you know, when are you gonna stop flying? I mean, if you had the ability to fly, would you ever give that up? Honestly, ask yourself that question. If you could fly, would you just all of a sudden one day say, you know what? Yeah, I don't need to do this flying stuff anymore. I mean, in all honesty, I can't answer that question for you, but I can't answer it for myself. And the answer is no, I will fly until the day I die. And the the reality is I will die. It's an absolute inevitability. It will happen, whether I'm jumping or I'm not jumping.
0: Jeb, Curlis, I just want to say that we must take some time to talk about the technique employed, not just the philosophical merits or demerits about what you do, (laughs) but actually about the skill. You are an artist, you are an engineer of a sort in deciding each flight. But sometimes things go awry, as they most certainly did in the most dramatic sense when you were on tabletop top mountain, and, uh, or table mountain at the top of it, and there was a miscalculation. You were fixated on a particular black balloon that you wanted to hit. And evidently, it was much lower in altitude than anticipated, and you went towards it, fixated, concentrating on the target, and in the process of hitting it, um, realized that it was not where it had had sp- supposed to have been, but much lower. You broke various parts of your body and, uh, and then still had the presence of mind from your discipline, and there's great discipline involved in what you do and calculation, to bring yourself out of another near-death experience, albeit injured. How did that I don't want to use the word impact because it's a non, non-intentional pun, but uh, how did that signify in how you viewed future, well, flying experiences and jumping experiences?
2: You know, um, that moment changed my life forever. Um, it changed me as a human being on, on many, many levels. I would say before I, I, I impacted Table Mountain, I was very childish in the way I saw the world and saw life and saw everything. To to give you an idea, I wasn't suicidal. I had stopped being suicidal when I was in my early 20s, um, probably around 20, actually. Like 1920 is when I no longer wanted to die, and I actually was very um, interested in surviving, and everything was based on trying not to die. Um, But I had a very fatalistic attitude. And my concept when I got into base jumping was that I was going to have five years to live. That's what I gave myself. Um, I didn't expect to survive longer than that. My retirement That's, that's, that's program, the length
0: of time for most jumpers, isn't it? Five years?
2: I mean, five years is, yeah, usually the time you get where you either get scared and stop, get injured and are forced to stop or you die. And that's what I kind of gave myself. And I, I survived through five years and then I gave myself another five. But I never believed that it was possible to live past 30 And my retirement program was death. So I was like, I will retire when I die. And that mentality created something unique in the way I saw life and and like making money. I never, oh, I didn't own anything. I didn't own homes. I didn't own cars. I didn't own stuff. I would make money and I would spend it on what I was doing. I thought that if I died with one penny in the bank, then I had failed at life. I I had this very fatalistic living every day as if it was the last day on this planet. And it gave me a power that I think is impossible for people to really grasp what living like that truly is. When you genuinely look at every day like it's your last day, it means you can do anything. And it gives you this um, freedom that is impossible to describe. And I had that for almost 20 years of my life. And all of a sudden, when I hit Table Mountain, something shifted in me because- Please, desc-
0: please I, describe to the people the speed you were going at uh, and the I altitude am, I you were am,
2: like, I'm the only person in the world that's documented, like we have footage to prove it, that impacted flat, solid granite at over 120 miles an hour, which- is terminal velocity. That's the equivalent of jumping out of an aircraft at 36,000 feet without a parachute and hitting the ground. Um, Mm -hmm. it's an unsurvivable accident. You cannot live through it. Um, I, when I was laying in the hospital bed, um, realizing that I had just had something called, it's called a terminal bounce. I, I bounced off the ground at terminal velocity And I didn't die, it created a very bizarre um, realization. And all of a sudden, you know, I had this whole time expected to die. And when that accident happened and I didn't die, uh, a somewhat terrifying realization started kind of seeping into me. And I came to realize that I was never scared of death, but I had always been very terrified of life. And I never thought that I was going to live. And it was a very strange thing to be laying in a hospital bed in South Africa, realizing, well, if that didn't kill me, well, what if I don't die? Like, what if I actually live? What happens if I make it to 40? Or 50, or God forbid, 60. And then as this thought, because I had never, it had never even crossed my mind. I started realizing if I continue living the way I am, this is not conducive to long-term survival. It's just you can't. This doesn't make sense. And, And I'm like, I don't have, at that moment, I had zero regrets you know, everything I'd done in my life, I owned and I was totally, you know, I own that. I made that mistake. I own that mistake. I did that. Everything I was totally great with, but I started projecting into the future. I started realizing that if I made it to 50 or 60, um, I was going to have a whole host of regrets because I was being very wasteful. Um, not just with my own life, not just with my own finances, but with all of my friendships, and relationships not just with my parents but with my friends with with everybody. And I started realizing that I was an incredibly selfish human being and that I needed to really change accept reality for what it is. So all of a sudden I started, you know, saving and I started investing and I started caring and I started trying to communicate with people more and trying to, you know, I was always quite um uh i was an outcast i was always very separate i never really i was misanthropic you know i didn't really like people or, or want to be around people i was very um to call me a loner would be a <laughs> an incredible understatement i i also have um social disorders where i'm i'm not very good with people and i'm not good in social situations and it's difficult for me to really connect with other people. And I realized these were all things I needed to work on. And that accident made me grow up, you know, and and made me see that I needed to make some real genuine changes in my life. If, you know, I wanted to continue having no regrets.
0: Jeb, let me ask you a curious question. In the case of the life of Jeb Corliss, does it take more bravery not
2: to jump? right now I don't have to jump anymore. It's no longer like for a long time. I say, whatever, 15, 16, 17 years. I had to jump. It was the only way I could exist without it. I couldn't survive. And to answer your question, yes, it would have taken more courage, not to jump for sure. At that point. Um, but now I don't need to do it anymore. Um, I now do it because I actually do it for fun. And I enjoy jumping with my fiance. She's also a wingsuit pilot. She's also a base jumper. She also dives with sharks. Um, And it's something we do together. And I I get a great deal of pleasure um, watching her go through the experiences. Because I guess it's kind of like Christmas, right? At 44 years old, Christmas doesn't really matter to me anymore. But when you have kids and you see the magic that it induces in them, that becomes the enjoyment of it, right? Seeing them experience it. I, I will say this, though existing and, and living and surviving, that's much more terrifying than dying. Um, dying is easy and we all do it. Every single living thing does it. The survival part, that's what's challenging. That's what's tricky. And that's what all of us are trying to do every single day. And any, any person in this world who is doing that, any person in this world who is surviving, any person in this world who is holding on, and hanging on, especially in these difficult times that we're facing right now, they're all heroes as far as I'm concerned. That's what takes courage.
0: Jeb Corliss, you are one of the most interesting people, literally, I've ever spoken with. Um, You're still an enigma to me uh, in, in many ways. I will conclude by saying, first of all, thank you for joining us and watching America. But I want to conclude by saying that life is precious. But so is Jeb Corliss. And if you'll forgive me this this overture on my part, which in a sense is not my business other than I feel some degree of affection and and fondness for talking to you, as did Conan O'Brien. It is my sincere hope that you will be at peace with not risking your life anymore, at least in such a dramatic fashion, and that you will have a happy marriage and many children and given to love and to being loved thank you so very much for joining us on watching america
2: thank you you asked some really good questions and you challenged me most people most people aren't aren't capable of doing that you did a really good job of like <laughs> getting me to like really think about things thank you
1: i remember when i remember i remember when i lost my mind
0: you've been listening to watching america our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. And our producer is Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer Chuck Dowd. Our Chief of Content is Heather Mazzoni. And our CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I want to thank you for making this program possible by your kind and generous contributions. Until next time, take care and blessings.
1: Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.